Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School lesson. This one is for June 13th of 2021. And uh, the question that we're looking at from the uh, New City Catechism this week is, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? <laughs> Interestingly enough, in this case, a little unusual, the question is actually longer than the answer. Usually it's vice versa. What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? And this, of course, leads us to describe the Redeemer that we talked about last week, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, the answer is one who is truly human and also truly God kind of short and sweet. Some of the other ones uh, be nice if they were that easy because uh, these are kind of designed to uh, teach children and to uh, memorize yourself so that you kind of have a grasp on good sound doctrine and theology. And uh, some of those are really, really difficult, I know, to memorize. But this is one that is easy and uh, one who is truly human and truly divine, truly God. And this is what we call in theology the hypostatic union. Now you know uh, a new word. It's kind of a, a cool word, hypostatic union. And it means that God became man and Jesus Christ is forever joined together as the God-man, fully God and fully man. I think a lot of people don't realize that if you were to go to heaven right now, you would see a human being sitting on the throne. You would see the Lord Jesus Christ still in flesh, and you would be able to see the nail scars in his hands and in his feet. Uh, the old hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns, says, those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. And um, I think that's a reminder that when we get to heaven, and when we finally, at the rapture of the church, receive our glorified bodies, when that resurrection takes place, people in heaven don't have their bodies yet. They're still in the grave. Uh, but one of these days, 1 Thessalonians 4, they're going to be called up. And Paul said to the Corinthians that this mortality, what I have right here, this earthly tabernacle, this earthly tent, is going to put on immortality, and it's going to be a glorified body. And so when you and I get to heaven with our perfection, our perfected bodies, body, soul, and spirit all together, yet we're going to be able to look at Jesus, and we're going to actually see his wounds that are immortalized forever. And forever you'll be able to look and see the nail prints. And you'll be able to be reminded and to give him glory and praise for what he did uh, for you. And the only way he could do that is, of course, to be human. But the only way that a human could ever satisfy the penalty for sin is to be God. And so the ingenious plan here is join God together with man and then you can have the sacrifice that is needed, shedding of blood, dying, which God can't do, 
but a human can. The God-man, Jesus did it for us, truly God and uh, truly man. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we hear this a lot at Christmas time, and I'm afraid we think far too much about um, a baby in a manger, which we should think about, but we don't get the full implication of uh, what this is talking about. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, those are titles, of course, for God. No dispute about that. A Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, that, that's self-evident. But notice how it starts off, for unto us a child is born. And this is Isaiah's prophecy about the incarnation. What does incarnation mean? Well, uh, carne is the Latin word for flesh. So to incarnate something, or incarnation, is to be put in flesh. And the incarnation of Christ was when God, Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, was put in flesh for us. Unto us a child is born. And that unto us is important as well because it tells us the purpose of this happening, the incarnation, is so that we might have the substitute and the sacrifice that we actually need. So there's a purpose in all of that. Unto us a child is born. It tells us that when Jesus does put on flesh, he's not just going to come out of heaven as uh, an adult male, uh, a king, and all of that. He's coming as a child. And the child, of course, born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, adored by angels and shepherds, later worshipped at a different place, a little older, by the wise men, sought out by Herod, and uh, yet through all of that, what does he do? He lives, and he lives a perfect life so that he could die on the cross for our sins. Now, um, I've made this statement before, but want to reiterate it. You and I would never have thought of a religion like this. You and I would never have thought or created or come up with a God like this or a plan like this. How do I know that? Because all you have to do is study world religions. And you look around and you see that religion is man's attempt to get to God. How can we make a tower like Babel tall enough so that we can climb and ascend to God? How do we build a ladder? How do we make ourselves righteous? How do we make ourselves to where the good outweighs the bad and we can enter into heaven? And that's uh, what all religion is. It's works-based. It's performance-based. It's human ex exaltation. All of these kind of things that go on. But Christianity is totally different. Christianity is not man coming to God. It's God coming to man. It's God coming and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is 
to be the righteous offering, the righteous sacrifice on our behalf to pay the debt that we owed the Father because of our sin. <clears throat> now, when we uh, consider who Jesus is and we think about him, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, think about this. <clears throat> because he's human, he can identify with us. We have somebody in heaven, perfect, who is God, <coughs> excuse me, who can also understand what it's like to live on earth. He understands what you go through. He is a God who had to learn. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience. Isn't that kind of strange to think of an all-knowing, ever-present God who would so empty himself that while he was still God, he laid aside all of the rights, the privileges, the prerogatives that he had as God and became one, one of us. And in Luke 2, 52, it uh, tells us, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And the word increased is what really is intriguing. The word increase means that he had to grow. He had to become better at that. And here's what I mean. When Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, it was just like he developed, just like you do. When he was conceived in Mary's womb, he was obviously not omnipresent because he's a tiny embryo being carried uh, inside of her. He obviously was not omniscient at that point. Uh, he had to learn, after he was born, he had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn uh, in Joseph's carpenter shop. He had to learn how to be a carpenter. He increased in these things. And notice the four ways that he uh, increased. It says uh, in wisdom, that's intellectual growth. And in stature, that's physical growth. He started off very little, and then he grew to complete maturity. Favor with God, that's spiritual growth. Favor with man, that's social growth. And uh, that's a good pattern for all of us. That's what we want to do as well. So he was born like us. He grew like us. He learned like us. And then even when he died on the cross, um, don't want to push this too far, but he died like us. And the only thing I mean on that is uh, his heart stopped beating. What happens when a human's heart stops beating? His brain quit functioning. What happens when a human being's brain stops functioning? I mean, all of that happened just like it's going to happen to you and it's going to happen to me, and it's happened to everybody who has ever lived. There comes a point to where they die, 
and their body and their organs and all of that stopped functioning. And that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. Now, uh, he can identify with us because if you are the one who is dying, he says, I've been there and I know what it's like to go through the pains and the suffering of death. If you are one who has been unjustly treated by the, uh, the legal system, he can say, I know what that's like. I was tried illegally and unlawfully uh, before a kangaroo court in Jerusalem. If you say, I don't have enough material possessions, he said, I understand what that's like because he was raised um, in a poor family. And even in adulthood, he said, remember, uh, birds have the nest and the uh, foxes um, just left me uh, have holes, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I mean, he understands. He can identify with all of that. If you were to say, my friends have forsaken me, well, he could tell you about when his disciples scattered. He could tell you about what it's like to be betrayed. He could tell you what it's like to be tired. Think about the times we see Jesus resting in various situations. There are times when he was hungry, times when he was thirsty. All of this kind of stuff, he can identify with you and he can identify with me because he knows all of this and he knows the hardships that they bring upon our lives. And so whenever you go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm struggling, you have a God who can say, I've been there and I understand. I understand. And that brings us to point number two. Okay? He can sympathize with us. Now, why do I make that point if he identifies with us? Isn't that the same thing? N not really. Have you ever had uh, a time when you talked to your parents, your grandparents, or an older adult, especially when you were a kid, and uh, maybe you were at ball practice and you hurt yourself, and you had a coach who had been there and had hurt himself just like you did, yet when you went to him or her, they had absolutely no sympathy for you. I've been there, everybody's been there. It's a part of the game, get up and go on. Walk it off, you know, that kind of stuff. Sometimes maybe you hear from your parents. About the time as a kid you might complain about something, they would go into a story about how they had it as bad or worse than you do and how they persevered and pressed on and that's what you need to do as well. And uh, that's not always untrue, is it? But nonetheless, um, the Bible talks about as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And the word pity there is not looks down upon and says, oh, you pathetic little crybaby. Um, the idea there in the Hebrew is more about he has sympathy, he has compassion. And we find this in the New Testament that uh, whenever I come to the Lord, whenever I'm struggling with temptation and sin, whenever I am hurting, whenever I'm going through a hard and rough patch in my life, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Now, I want you to think about what does it take to get you in a foul mood? What does it take to get you to where nothing satisfies you? What does it take to get you to where it's like a dark cloud is covering over you and raining on you and everything you see is tainted by that? And um, let's be honest, not much, not much. Much less when we have the big things happen. You know, when somebody has just tragically lost a child or a spouse. We don't always expect them to act very spiritual or very godly. Boy, it's a, an amazing thing, a good testimony and a blessing when they do, but we don't expect that. And we don't always press them for that because their emotions are so raw and they are hurting so badly. That's the time not to try to correct them, not to try to instruct them, that's the time to do what? Sympathize with them. That's why we send sympathy cards. That's why we express our condolences when they go through that. When somebody is in the heat of battle and uh, they're seeing people fall wounded and dead all around them, we don't always expect that to be like a worship service or anything, do we? Um, we're not shocked when the words coming out of their mouth are uh, vile and foul. Uh, we sort of have a little bit of understanding on that because that is one of the worst of circumstances. And uh, so the point being, we understand when the worst that can happen to a human brings out the worst in that person or the worst in us. We do not understand, however, that some of the smaller ticky-tacky things can do the same. We'd like to think we could handle those small things. We'd like to think that we are stronger than that. But the Lord allows small things, irritating things, things that just trip us up, right? Like a, maybe an uneven sidewalk or something that you don't see when you're walking on and you get tripped up. It wasn't necessarily intentional, but man, does it ever aggravate and sometimes hurt. And those things can bring out the worst in us. And that's the Holy Spirit waving a red flag saying, you're not perfect. You still need to be sanctified. And only God can do that. You can't handle the small things. I think about um, what it says in Jeremiah. I'm paraphrasing, of course, that if you can't keep up with the infantry, what are you going to do when the cavalry comes. If you can't keep up with the soldiers that are on foot, what are you going to do when the ones that are on horseback come? And we look at our life and realize that most of the time, going back to what I said before, it's not the big things that really get us. Most of us, most of us are victims of the little things. Let me illustrate it this way. The Apostle Peter, when Jesus uh, said, you're going to deny me, Peter goes, not me. No, the others might, but it won't be me. I'll die with you if uh, I have to. 
Now, when Peter said that, was he just blowing smoke? I don't think so. I think he actually meant it. I think he was willing to die for the Lord at that point. But you know, like so many of us, things can change. We can say a lot of things here in the auditorium and sing a lot of things that we really mean at the time. But what are we going to do when circumstances change and when we're caught off guard? And I would say Peter, even though he shouldn't have, he was warned by the Lord, but he got caught off guard. He expected that this denial would come maybe at the point of a sword. And he was willing to give his life for his Lord. But it didn't come at the point of the sword. Peter's in the courtyard of the trial of Jesus, and he's warming his hands at a fire, and somebody comes up and says, aren't you one of them? He didn't expect that. And it's almost like without thinking, he blurts out, I don't know what you're talking about. Remember? There's a little girl that comes up to him. You're one of his, and you know, you're, you're with them. And uh, now he's got to keep the lie going. Have you ever been caught in something to where you kind of misstated the truth, and now you're too embarrassed to correct it or admit that you're wrong, and so you double down on it? Well, Peter tripled down on this, and then the rooster crowed, and then he saw Jesus looking at him sorrowfully, and he went out and he wept bitterly. I mean, what was it that got him? It wasn't that somebody said, deny Christ or die at the point of a sword. He probably would have risen to that occasion. And there are those times when you and I, we come to the place where the big things come up and we're able to put on our armor and we were able to take out our sword and say, not today, not today, and conquer that thing. And then trip over the pebble of a bad temper or bad traffic or those kind of things that we say, well, that's normal and explainable. No, it's not. Jesus handled it, everything that we go through, and he did it without sin. And he was doing that for the glory of God and to be qualified to be our substitute. Now, the great thing about it is he did it without sin, and yet the Bible says that because he endured those things, and because he did it without sin, that uh, he is the answer for us. What's the answer for overcoming a bad temper? What's the answer for overcoming an addiction to pornography or alcohol? What's the uh, prescription for overcoming bad relationships or improving as a husband or a father or a wife or a mother or whatever it may be? It's Jesus. And as Jesus fills your life and lives through you, he knows how to handle all of those things because he's been there and he's done that. And so we've got to go to him and we've got to yield to him. And that is the victory that we uh, have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it without sin. And yet in that, he doesn't chide us. He doesn't jump on us, but he sympathizes with us. He has sympathy and he has compassion for us because he's a human. Thirdly, he can defend us. First John chapter two, verse one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
Well, if he stopped right there, uh, I'm discouraged. If you stop right there, you don't have any hope either. May not sin. I've already blown that so many times today even. But he goes on. <coughs> but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isn't that beautiful? Here I am commanded not to sin. Given every resource, every instruction in the all-sufficient Word of God to live a victorious Christian life. And by victorious, I would, for these purposes, say a life that overcomes temptation, that overcomes sin, that overcomes the depravity of our humanity. Got it all. Got it all. I have all things, the Bible says, that pertain to life and godliness. The Bible says we are complete in him, lacking nothing. So you've got it all, I've got it all. What happens when we sin? We don't use it. We don't use our resources. We don't put up the shield of faith. We choose to believe the enemy instead of believing God, see? And we always think we can handle it. We always think that uh, it'll be okay. It won't be a big deal. It'll, it'll all work out. And yet, uh, of course, it doesn't. And at that very moment where we sin, at that very moment where we violate God's will and uh, purpose for our lives, Jesus is standing there to defend us. And the term here, advocate, is like a lawyer, a legal term. We've got a lawyer. We've got a defender. We've got a counselor who is in heaven, and he is standing in our place to defend us even though we are wrong. And why is it that he does that? Because he's been here. He's been one of us. He's the God-man. And if you overemphasize any one of those things, you can fall into error. And if you underemphasize any one of those things, fully God and fully man, equality and all of that. And so the standard of God is purity, and as imperfect sinners, we do indeed sin, and Christ rises to our defense. And it's not like he's way off somewhere, and uh, we have to coax him in or beg him to come in to help us or anything like that at all. Not the case. He is the one who does this, and he does this for us before the Father. And noticed, uh, notice what John said. Our advocate's name is Jesus Christ the righteous. It's based on his righteousness and not our own. This is beautiful stuff here because only the God-man could do any of this for us. You can't do it for me. I can't do it for you. A priest, a rabbi, a preacher, no one can do this for you. That's why there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We go to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And number four, it means that he alone can save us. Back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. See the God-man aspect right there? Okay. In burnt offerings and of the 
a real thing in offerings, you and in offerings, pardon me, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it was written of me in the scroll of the books. God says in this passage that Jesus was preexistent. And of course, we know that from John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later he tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Well, that's what we're seeing here, that the preexistence of Christ, and then the Father prepared a body for Jesus so that he could come and so that he could be born for us. And it is Jesus, the God-man, that says to his Father, you didn't want another sacrifice in terms of what was going on in the temple. You didn't want another sacrifice like at Passover or something like that. David even knew that. In Psalm 51, he said, you don't desire sacrifice or I would bring it. But the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. God wants more than just a slaughtered animal. God wants more than just something that you do for him to try to make up for what you have done that is wrong. You need a savior. And so this savior has come, and this savior is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And he comes to do your will, O God. You see, there's a sense to where, yes, Jesus died for me as my substitute on the cross. But there's a greater sense to say that Jesus died for God. He's doing the will of God. I have come to do your will, O God. And then notice that it's according to the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, eternal word of God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So the Old Testament sacrifices were a prediction of Jesus coming to be the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the one that paid for everything in full. They were just pictures of Jesus. And so people were not saved because a lamb bled on an altar or anything like that. They were saved because that lamb symbolized and prophesied that God's lamb one day would hang on a cross to die for our sins. And their faith saved them. Their faith is what caused them to look ahead to see what God was going to do. They looked ahead to the cross. We looked, we looked back to the cross. And we know that Jesus came and he took residence in a body that the Father had made for him. And so Jesus is not a created being. Jehovah's Witnesses and some other groups teach that Jesus was the first creation of God the Father, that he's Jehovah's deputy. Well, according to John 1, nothing could be farther from the truth. God the Father created a body for his son. Now, the body was the creation of God. Mary was told that which is conceived as you is of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. But God, the Son, Jesus, was preexistent. In fact, he's the creator of everything, the Bible tells us. 
And so God the Son stepped out of heaven into the body that the Father had prepared for him. And at that point, the hypostatic union, he became the God-man. And so his death was in obedience to his Father's will, and that eternally benefits us, of course. So the Redeemer, Jesus, had to be a God-man, had to be perfect as God is, and had to live that out as a human so that he could bleed, suffer, and die in our place on the cross. What a Savior. What a great God. What a wonderful thing grace is. And how joyous it is to know that the cross is our symbol of victory because our perfect Savior, the God-man, died and took the wrath of God that we should have been given, and he paid the sin debt in full. There is a Redeemer, and Jesus is his name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I hope it blessed you. And uh, teachers, praying that God will anoint you as you take this information and present it to your class. And if you're watching this because you missed Sunday school, well, I hope we'll see you back again this next week. And overall, may the Lord just simply bless all of you for his glory. Thank you.